Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. Welcome, everyone. Let's give a brief summary of what the last episode was about so that everybody can be up to speed. We talked a lot about Tantra forming the ideological context for Siddha practice or Siddha-oriented practices. Remember that Siddha practices is composed of three, this tantric element, this hatha yogic element, and this alchemical element. And and there's so much commonality between them that we feel like you kind of speak of one, you also speak of another. The symbolic imagery of this ideological universe that's tantric, David Gordon White is called erotico-mystical. And so there's a sexual mystical flavor to what is going on here. And and you could kind of begin to understand that by understanding that for the tantrics, the the absolute is can be seen as a rhythm between emergence and res- resorption, or what they would say, emission and resorption, or sometimes the reflection of uh, the generation of light and the reflection back of that light. There's this rhythm going on, but they focus not only on that, but that that rhythm is a is is an energy creation event, not only a, an energy use event. It doesn't only require energy to for it to happen, but it also produces subtle essence. And you can see the erotic part being obviously that this is a rhythm and it's a certain motion, but it's a motion that involves sexual fluids or sexual essences. So the cosmos is engaged in this rhythm and producing essence and the earth is and the human is and the gods are and so on and so forth. So it's very important to see this context because the sexual essence of the human is the homologue of the divine essence, which for the alchemist, for instance, are the metals in the earth. So the siddhas believe they can intervene in this rhythm and begin to accelerate and optimize the the production of these subtle essences. And that if they're successful in that, then they get liberation from ignorance, but also power. The last thing I think is very unique is that now... The, there's a possibility if this intervention is successful that the, pra- the personality or the personal uniqueness of the practitioner might be transmuted into something eternal, might not only be something that comes and goes with circumstance, but could actually last. And I think that's a different idea of liberation when compared to something like the Upanishad, where the Atman is, quote, absorbed like salt into water you know, into the absolute. I think that's worth noting. In this episode, we're going to begin talking about the specifics of the intervention. What do they conceive of that meaning? What do they believe needs to happen in relation to this essence that is produced? So, Let's say this, if if the rhythm is between manifestation and non-manifestation, we have to think big. If the rhythm is between the production of light and the reflection of light, the 
the yogis or the siddhas focus on the production phase, they want to limit what they would call externalization. And that means a certain set of things that we're going to be getting into over the course of a couple of episodes. But they don't just want to stop the rhythm. They want to mess with the phase of it that externalizes because it is said that in that phase, more essence can be lost than is produced. Essence can be wasted. And so the siddhas really want to want to intervene in this externalizing phase, which they're going to equate with ignorance in some sense and things like that. There are three stages involved in this intervening in the rhythm of great nature. Purification, immobilization, and reversal. Sometimes it's called ulata sadhana, and that, that means reversal, to, to go back. Sometimes it's called kayakalpa sadhana, which means the regeneration or transmutation of the body. In this episode specifically, we're talking mostly about the preparation that has to happen and the ideas that center around purification for the, for the reversal, quote-unquote, of the intervention into the rhythm to be successful. And to do that, we need to go back to the Vedic sacrifice because Siddha practices like most of the things that have come in, in this series that we've been doing on history, are based around those sacrificial models. So let me, let's jog our memory just a, a quick bit before we go into specifics. Remember that the essence of the Vedic sacrifice is the triad, fluid, fire, and wind. So now we're in a space in Tantra and Hatha and alchemy where the fluid, which remember was Soma way back when, is considered to be semen or reproductive tissue, and in alchemy in specific, mercury. Well, the fire, which was Agni, right in the Veda, is now tapas because this is an individual microcosm intervening in a rhythm, and so heat has to be generated in an unusual way in that particular microcosm. So this is the yogi or the alchemist, right, of the tantric, generating heat him or herself. And then, of course, there's prana, which is the wind. So we can go back to the Veda and find the origin of how preparation should be done and what purification might mean. So if Vedic ritual is the archetype, so to speak, for the, the Siddha's idea of intervening in great nature, where is the cosmic rhythm in the Veda would be a really interesting question to ask. And that could mean Rig Veda, that could mean in the Brahmanas. Remember, we're talking about that large corpus of, of literature. And David Gordon White points out that we do find that rhythm. There's a fundamental story about what he calls, quote, the alternation, which means the rhythm between manifestation and non-manifestation or the rhythm between fertility and total lack of fertility and so on. So in this story, the primordial creator, which sometimes is Purusha, I think that's in the Rig Veda, then Prajapati is in the Brahmanas. And, and, and as I understand it, they refer basically to the same primordial creature, the primordial one. 
So in this scenario, Purusha, having poured himself and out like a liquid into the manifest world, he lies broken and dying because he is emptied of his essence. This essence is the soma, right, that that generates and creates the world and also restores the world. He will lie there uh, broken and dying and eventually die unless he is restored to wholeness through a fire sacrifice. And so the story says that his son, who is Agni, the fire, we've heard that before, Agni builds a fire altar made out of a certain kind of brick of a certain proportion and so on, and it has five basic levels. And in the building of this fire altar, he reconstitutes the body of his father. And performing the fire sacrifice, the father gets filled back up again with soma, with the life-giving elixir and fluid. And the alternation, or this going from empty to full, is restored again through the fire sacrifice. Here's what David Gordon White says specifically about that. Alternation is restored, quote, only through the offering on the part of a human sacrificer of a major sacrifice. And so this notion that we participate in this rhythm and help sustain it through sacrifice goes way, 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 way back. It's also very important to see here that that this is a story about something going from fullness in which its essence is in abundance in it to through an externalizing motion that of making the world or pouring himself out that it, there's a need for that to be regenerated and the conditions of course are fulfilled through sacrifice so in order to make a fire sacrifice you have to prepare the ground and purify the ground David Gordon White again gives us really cool information about how that was done. Here's what he says about the land on which the sacrifice is going to take place. Purification of the land involved, quote, sealing off mundane parcels of land through a series of purificatory acts, plowing and cultivating the land, allowing it to lie fallow, and finally covering it with a layer of sand which symbolized the semen of the emptied prajapati. So note first that the land is sealed off. This is pointing in a way to the techniques that bring us to stillness. In Hatha, it points way far down the line to Banda, to Mudra, to things like that. You can see already in the Vedic sacrifice that in order for all this to get underway, something has to be sealed off in a certain way, but then it has to be purified. So here, the the action is plowing and cultivating, then allowing it to lie fallow. And of course, it gets covered with sand, i.e. it gets fertilized. The land becomes the space upon which the creator, Purusha, poured out his rasa or poured out the soma. Now it's ready to produce seeds or it's ready to have things planted in it. 
in the same way that the land had to be purified, the body of the sacrificer had to be purified. So the body of the person conducting the sacrifice has to be transformed in a certain way. Okay, it, It'll need to be sealed off in a certain way if this pattern follows, and it'll need to be purified through some kind of fire. And in that case, it would be fit to conduct the sacrifice. This process is, is literally called diksha. And I think literally that term means something like habilitation. Generally, you see it translated as initiation. And so the initiation of the sacrificer is a preparation and a purification for the sacrifice. In this story I'm about to tell you, note the images of gestation and of sexual reproduction. David Gordon White says this, quote, Sequestered within the initiation hut, the sacrificer is cooked through the inner heat of his austerities, that would be the tapas, and the external heat of burning fire that has been placed in the hut. He symbolically sheds his mundane body. An embryo of his new sacrificial body takes form, incubates, and is born out of the, quote, womb of the hut three days later. Well, this is a fascinating story. Obviously, you see the metaphors of gestation, of birth, right, of, be, of being also transformed, this act of sweating, being cooked in a certain way in a fire. And there are two fires here. The external fire is obviously in the hut with the with the sacrificer. Now, I heard some details about this this uh, ceremony, I believe, through Karen Armstrong in her book *The Great Transformation*. She says that the that the sacrificer was dressed in a a sheet that is to be understood as the placenta or the call c a u l, and that during this time of lying by the fire. The sacrificer has to lie in the fetal position and make certain gestures, certain sacrificial gestures. One of those is clench, the clenching of the fists to, to mimic the frustration of a newborn and a reflex, the grasping reflex. One is that the sacrificer had to stammer like a child that didn't know how to speak and then to top all that off, all these gestures being made, all this sweat being produced, the sacrificer had to visualize this whole scenario while it's happening inside so that the heavenly world and the earthly world are connected. Amazing. So, Siddha practice this tantric, hatha-yogic, alchemical matrix definitely appropriates from the Vedic world this notion that something has to be sealed off uh, or somehow immobilized and then purified through fire in order for it to be fit for certain ends or aims. Those ends would be, in hatha yoga, the creation of the divine body, in alchemy, in, in like really metallurgically focused 
forms of ritual. It would be the ability to absorb, being pure enough to absorb mercury that had been purified itself. So this pattern persists through Siddha practice. Sometimes in this context, it's called mastering or preparing the field. Kshetri Karana. That word Kshetra is, we know from the, I learned from the Bhagavad Gita, the, the field on which Arjuna and Krishna drive to the middle is called the Dharmakshetra, Kudukshetra. So here the body is a field, definitely connected to the Vedic matrix that we've been talking about. Sometimes, though, it's called purification of the elements, which means, or which is Bhutashuddhi. And I know several practitioners, myself, who have long been engaged because of their tantric bent and their meditations to being engaged in this practice that basically looks like a practice of pranayama and visualization in which the elements of the body are come into contact with via awareness and feeling and and visualization. And there's a sequence of events that's understood to be purifying that you go through. Though both of these things then would be considered techniques to re-fertilize the field, right? That would be the body. So that it becomes a place where something can be planted and absorbed. The idea of purification is really strong in the Hatha Yoga of the modern world. If we go to uh, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is a relatively recent, I'm not ex exactly sure when the dates are, but I would say definitely by, you know, between 8 and 1100 uh, CE, the, there's a system of six purifications called Shat Karmani. That means the six practices. And this is the basic sequence through which someone would be taken in order to prepare them or prepare the body for what's going to happen in practice. Let me run through them real quickly. One is called Dauti, and that's cleansing the stomach by swallowing a, a strip of muslin cloth, a real soft kind of cloth that's been moistened swallowed down into the stomach bit by bit by bit and you retain some and then you pull it out really slowly. As I understood it, this is to rid the body of excess mucus, sometimes called kapha in the literature. Um, the stomach is the seat of this energy and we know it has a mucus lining. So the beginning of the process of purification and preparation starts in the digestive tract in the, in the most gross place about us. The the next one is basti or anima, and anima is really, really utilized in Ayurveda, as most of you who are in Ayurveda will know, because the colon is, the, the functioning of the colon is very, very important, and enemas are of different kinds, oil, different things, there's herbal things, and it's a way to medicate and so on, but it generally is for ridding the body of excess vada, excess air, because that's the seat of the air element. So when you do the stomach and the colon, you do the major portions of the digestive system, a place where where accumulation is can be very strong because stuff's moving through there all the time. That's the only part of us that's connected to the, you know, the outer world in a sense. So then there's neti, 
Most of y'all will know that is nasal irrigation. Sometimes it was done with a cloth, right, or a string. And this keeps the nasal passages clear because the the Hatha Yogans and the Tantrikas understand those nasal passages to go directly, sort of direct, more direct access to the subtle body. You can breathe in through your mouth, but that breathing won't touch the subtle body in the same way that the that nostril breathing will. So those have to be kept clean. And there's a whole system of diagnosis of the of the human and diagnosis of the mind and so on just by the nostril patterns in relation to the phase of the moon. Uh, the next one is Trataka. This is candle gazing. Uh, some of you may have known it as, as gazing at a candle and then closing the eyes and continuing to visualize the candle. That's part of it as I learned it. I learned that the point of it was to hold the eyes open long enough such that they began to water. And that that watering action will cleanse the fire element. And the eye, of course, is the organ of fire or the sensory portal of fire, both for receiving it, radiance, and for for giving it, actually. So this would be a, a subtle form of purification of, of what Ayurveda would call pitta, the pitta dosha. This would be a sub-dosha, I think, of pitta. I might not be right about that. So the next one is nauli or lauliki. Uh Stomach churning, abdominal churning. Those of you who have seen many photos of practitioners or videos, you may have seen someone isolate their rectus abdominis in a certain motion uh, along with holding their breath out on exhalation and then being able to move the rectus to the, rectus to the right sometimes to, and then to the left and then eventually to, to make a circle over and over in both directions. That making of a circle in both directions, obviously, physically, it moves the intestines, and that is part of the deal here, too. But it also works in the area of the of the seat of the digestive fire. And so it's said to be stoking that inner flame. You can see that that one would come into play after the other two had cleaned it, the tract, Dauti and Basti, then, then the fire starts to get stoked and, and managed in a, in a certain way. The last one is Kapalabhati. This literally means shining skull. Uh, it's in as we learned it. It's a kriya. It's not a pranayama. Some would disagree. It's maybe splitting hairs a little bit, and we have our, our reasons for that. This is about. It's called shining skull because, as I understand it, it accesses one of the subtle five winds that run the system. The the they're called vayus. We know that word from the Veda way back. Now, by the time of Hatha Yoga, though, that idea of wind has been medicalized in a certain sense and seen as the, the forces or imagined as the forces that run different functions in our body. Udana is the force of expression. It's uh, the force that, that brings strength. It, it's also conceived, considered to be the force that carries the soul to the next life, and so it needs to be strong. So because of the way that Kapalabhati configures the breath, that particular wind is is accessed, as I learned it. So ending this list of purification, you see very subtle things, kind of like we move from the stomach and the anus through the nasal passages, make sure that the eyes, the visual mechanism is seen, stoke the digestive fire, and then clear the perceptual seat in the skull. It's a nice little sequence that 
that is actually based on the Vedic sacrifice. So if we get a little bit more specific, we can see further parallels between the groups of the Siddhas and further expressions that they're all engaged in this same process of that concerns itself with the production and maximization, optimization of essence. And that would be metal and sexual fluid in, in Ayurveda. It's rasa. So I wanted to bring a few things to light about metal and alchemy in, in specific. We've said that the alchemists and the hatha yogis and the tantrics are, are all practicing a very similar thing. And so that means that people who were doing metallurgy or metal craft that was had a spiritual orientation to it, which is what's going on in this case, where we're working with mercury because mercury is a divine sexual fluid. And if if left in the earth, it's going to eventually become gold because all the metals are ripening in the earth in the same way that our sexual fluids are ripening inside us. And we're just intervening in that process. We're going to cook it and ripen it and then use it in a certain way. And so alchemy comes from metallurgy. Remember that. And the idea that there's this ripening process going on of this essence. So alchemists who are engaged in this process will ceaselessly cook mercury. They'll cook it in distillation vessels. Usually it has to be extracted from something called cinnabar, which is red. And, uh, and there are many sacred sites where cinnabar is, is mined and, and used or had. And then once you cook it in a certain way, usually in some kind of distillation vessel where it, it's, it's cooked and, and the evaporated stuff sticks to the top of the vessel and then that can be scraped off and it can happen over and over and over again until eventually you get quicksilver, which continues to be purified. It's an amazing, strange process. Don't do that, any of you out there listening. Remember, we're doing history and we're trying to understand a set of images f for our imagination in, in particular. So while all this purification of mercury is going on, because the macrocosm mirrors the microcosm, the alchemist understands that he or she herself is being purified and needs to actively engage in that process. So strict diets are, are observed over the course usually of like a lunar fortnight, like 15 days of really strict diet in certain phases of the moon. And the idea there is to try to remove every bodily impurity with which the mercury that you're eventually going to ingest these tiny amounts of might react. So if we keep this idea of purification of mercury and the purification of the body and the rasa or the sexual fluid in the, in the body, and also that the hatha yogis were involved in this process, that means there's sweating and there's techniques and so on, and there's those six purifications that I just mentioned, the Shat Karmani. We can take these parallels about uh, that we're talking about purification and, and preparation further. So there are two, there are many techniques for purifying mercury, but there are two in particular that relate 
to hatha yoga in a really interesting way. One technique for purifying mercury is called sweating. It's a form of cooking. And one is called rubbing. Sweating is svedana, and rubbing is mardana. Svedana, or sweating, is one of the primary techniques in Ayurveda that that those of you who know Ayurveda will be concerned with. It's one of the ways to rid the excess fire element from the body. Uh, mercury is sweated, and then at a certain point, after it's been extracted, it has to be, quote, rubbed, and that means moved and and stirred in a way or mixed in a way, and it eventually takes on that shine that we all know as quicksilver through that process. Well, both of these obviously relate to the Vedic initiation. Remember the sacrificer sweats in the hut as he behaves like an embryo. In Hatha, sweating was considered to be a sign that the Shakarmani have begun to work. And so when someone sweats freely in their practice, it's a sign that the flow inside the body is beginning to open up and that it also is remaining continuous. And so the idea was that you stay clean a little bit from the inside if you sweat in a certain way. Now, most of the techniques of Hatha, remember in the space of forceful yoga, most of them are designed to be sweat-inducing, and that would include the pranayamas if, and the bandhas. As I understand them now, more directly in relation to these practices and these images that we're calling Siddha yoga. So after the period of sweating subsides, the Hatha Yogan is instructed to literally rub <laughs> that sweat back into the skin. This is something that, that I heard very long ago in Ashtanga Vinyasa circles because I practiced that form of asana for a long time. This is something we were told to do like right away that when the first series was over, usually I was sweating at that time that we are to rub that sweat back in to the skin. So that that's an amazing practice that relates directly to alchemy, right? And the idea of purification and so on. I think what I find interesting about it is, is that when we do that, we treat the body in exactly the same way that the alchemist treats the mercury, but we treat ourselves as if we are that rare substance. We treat ourselves as if we're going through this process that is aiming toward gold or consciousness or whatever the, in the case of the siddhas, right, uh, the adamantine body, the diamond body. So let's make a summary. For the three intermingled branches of Siddha practice, the creation of the immortal body and its powers of transmutation, that's the aim, remember, that has to be preceded by periods of preparation and purification. So these elements of practice it, for the tantrico, hathako, alchemical practitioner for the Siddhas are patterned on the Vedic ritual. And we showed that through the story of Prajapati's rejuvenation via his son Agni piling a firing, fire altar that reconstituted his body and then conducting a ritual that filled him back up with his essence. In Hatha and alchemy, the same process is going on. 
It's been internalized in the same way that the Vedic sacrifice got internalized in the Upanishads, for instance. In Hatha and alchemy, it's called preparing the field, remember? Kshetri Karana. In tantric ritual more so, it's called purification of the elements or Bhuta Shuddhi. These two practices are deeply symbolic and involved in purification, preparation of the physical body so that it doesn't interfere with what is supposed to make its way to the subtle body. After this process of purification and preparation is, is successful, we still then have reversal, and reversal is preceded by something called immobilization. And so the next episode, we're going to talk specifically about that. What is this obsession with bringing something to stillness? I hope this has been interesting for all of you. We sure appreciate your listening. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. To support our podcast, find Circle Yoga Shala's Patreon page and receive early access, study guides, live sessions with your podcast host, Matt, retreat discounts, and more. Circle Yoga Shala is a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains. Offerings range from beginner yoga teacher training to an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, as well as Ayurvedic cooking courses for individuals and professionals like chefs, nutritionists, and life coaches. Additional retreats include equine inquiry, CEUs, yoga and recovery, and so much more. Subscribe to our quarterly publication, Yoga in Action, a comprehensive body of literature. To know more about our in-person offerings, visit circleyogashala.com.